Welcome to another episode of the Underground Bunker Podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega. And today I'm joined by Louise Schechter. How are you, Louise? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Um, for those, some of our readers who don't, don't realize it, Louise has been writing some dynamite pieces for the Underground Bunker about her experiences on the Apollo with L. Ron Hubbard, some really unique stories, and I just love the way Louise writes, and she's given us uh, several of these pieces. And I thought it was about time she actually came on the podcast so we can have a conversation. So, <laughs> Louise, would you help um, folks by just giving sort of a brief overview of your career in Scientology and the, the different things that you were up to? Sure. Um, so the first thing that happened is I joined really the Sea Org right off the street as a non-Scientologist in September 1969, and I happened to be in Denmark where one of the ships was situated. And um, so I was in Denmark studying Dianetics for a month or so, and then I was shipped off to the Apollo in Casablanca uh, in October 69. And within just a little over a year of arriving on the vessel, I became Commodore Staff Aide uh, for Treasury Divisions, which is called CS3. And I held that position, which meant that I was a personal aide to LRH uh, until the very end of the ship, which was October 1975 when we went to shore. So I had the... Um, that's a long time. Privilege. Yes, I was uh, the longest standing aide, except for Diana, his daughter. So I had the unlucky privilege of knowing the man quite well. <laughs> 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 and so then um, the last time I saw him was we, were, we went ashore in Daytona Beach very briefly before we bought Clearwater. Somewhere around November 1975, before he split from that whole area in a hurry, is, is when I had my last private conversation with him. Okay. Uh, fast forward to this, I was in Clearwater for four years, um, working in finance and in the geo, but that's another story. And then in August 79, I took a leave of absence along with my husband and our son, who was quite ill, and we went back to Canada where we both came from, so we'd have medical care for my son. Uh, so next, uh, next we were public for several years and I did my OT3 and so did my husband. By 1986, I was picked, handpicked to be recruited to go to Golden Era, aka, you know, the int base at Hemet, right. in order to become the director of the Cine Division, which is the division that made the films for LRH. That's quite a long story, but then I was at Gold. Uh, from 1986 through to the end of 1990, um, much of it as the director, some of it in the RPF. And then I left uh, permanently, uh, but I didn't quit Scientology altogether until the year 2000. So that was really a long stretch, 30 years of being... Um, in the various venues, I mean, the Athena, which was the old ship, the Apollo, I was also on the free winds for three months. I was in Clearwater. Um, I was at Gold. And then I was a public Scientologist again. So I've kind of seen it all, been there, done that, if you will. Yeah, well, 1969 to 2000, that's quite a span. And then it sure is. the thing, and in, so far... For the bunker, you've written some dynamite pieces about the the issues with your son's health and how that was. You were being spied on literally by Scientology. <laughs> um, that you you then some of your experiences on the ship uh, have been fascinating. And I thought what we talk about today, when when we were going over your history, I realized that you may be one of the best people who got a very up close personal experience working with both L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige. That's and true. I'm not sure how many people can say that. So, um, Well, some of them can, but <clears throat> unfortunately, many of those are no longer available to us. Uh, Greg right. Wilhair, for instance, and so on. Right. So, um, you know, I thought that'd be a really great subject for the podcast is I'm asking you, 
to give us some sense of what it was like to work directly with Hubbard. Then we'll talk about what it was like to directly work with Miscavige. And I'd love to get your thoughts on comparing and contrasting them. Yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting topic. Um, I have to say that they were both uh, different, but it is very clear to me how DM took a leaf off the old man. We used to call him the old man. Right, right. So uh, really almost his face. That was the nickname for LRH when we were working with him. Um, so well, let's, uh, let's start with Hubbard. Yeah, well, Hubbard was an interesting personality. I should go back to saying that before I ran into the Sea Org, I studied um, science and I studied philosophy. And I was very distressed because they never spoke. And this was the early 60s, and this was the Cuban Missile Crisis and so on. So this, the, the nuclear scare was very real at that time in my youth. I mean, you know, bunker training and forgive the, the, the pun, but, you know, like nuclear bunker, you know, training drills and whatnot were in. <clears throat> and so... Uh, when I heard the phrase, a science of the mind, I went, bingo, that's what we need. Right. And uh, I happened to be, you know, cruising around, uh, just traveling around in Denmark at that time. And I went on the ship and they said, yeah, sure, you can stay here. The ship being the Athena, which was the little boat. And they said, yeah, you can stay here and you can study Dianetics. So I studied Dianetics for a month. Uh, I did the Dianetics course three times through, full time. And I didn't know who LRH was. I didn't know if he was alive. It never right. occurred to me to even ask, who, where is he? What is he? Is he still around? Because all of the philosophers I'd studied before, they were all dead people. Right. <laughs> it's not like you could send them an email. And so <laughs> um, a month later, I was selected amongst uh, several of the students that were there to go to what was known as flag, which was the Apollo, which of course I knew nothing about, but you know, one ship goes to another ship. Yeah, I'm in for that. I loved ships. I have to say I was raised on boats. And so I ended up on the Apollo in October 69 and the Apollo was in Casablanca and refit. And it had just gone back into the water when I arrived. And two or three days later, there was this big hoopla. I was posted in the galley so I could see outside on the deck near the gangway. And there was this big hoopla, the Commodore's coming back. <laughs> so I'm going, what are we talking about here? And it turns out LRH was a real person. And it turns out he had been ashore for several weeks while the boat was in dry dock. And too much fanfare with everybody, you know, lining the gangway, Navy style and so on. He came aboard and there was this big guy. <laughs> and I went, oh, <laughs> that's LRH. And a tall guy, somewhat paunchy, late 50s. He had most of his hair was still sort of flaming red at the time. And Mary Sue, bless her soul, I don't even remember if she was there with him uh, because he made such an impression. And he shook up a couple hands and went up to his quarters. And that was the end of that. So uh, that was a new realization. Now, I was posted in Treasury for that year. And while in Treasury, I did a lot of basic training. And the first real acquaintance I had with LRH is that very shortly after he arrived, he ran a series of tapes, uh, le taped lectures in the, in the aft lounge where the crew used to hang out. And they later were rebranded as the Welcome to the Sea Org tapes. Very famous to this day. Okay. All new Sea Org members have to listen to these. I think there's five or six of them. And that was my first impression of him fairly close up. And his lecturing was fascinating. He had a technical guy who ran a Nagra tape recorder next to him. And it was all extemporaneous. And he made sure to just throw in a few jokes here and there. And he was very casual and sort of offhanded in all of his remarks often repeated himself, but he made some very strong points about how uh, the fact that we were a ship and that we had to handle um, the, the bulk of the deck and the engine and all the safety items and all that actually made us better people, stronger, more capable, more alert people. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I could deal. Well, the next thing that happened is a year later, because I'd done my finance course, I was promoted to being CS3. 
So the job involved really one thing, which is a little bit like in politics in the U.S., which is you serve at the pleasure of the Commodore. We just call him the Commodore, of course. Right, right. You serve at the pleasure of the Commodore. So that means you do whatever it is that he might do, need, uh, want you to do, need, generally in relation to your, your area of responsibility and expertise. Mine included all of the ship's finances. I was responsible for all the expenses and financial planning uh, for routine operations, for missions we used to send out. When the ship had a refit, I would go over all the expenses with the captain, uh, you name it. And so I also had responsibility for all of the financial results and solvency of all the organizations at that time worldwide. So it was a bit of a handful. <laughs> now, LRH, um, shortly after I came in, wrote the data series. And he trained us, his aides, on how to do evaluations. And when I say training, I mean firsthand. You would do an evaluation. It would go straight to him. He would call you in, and he would comment or correct or ask questions about what you've just done. Some of the uh, memorable ones I did were St. Hill, Ash Show Foundation. I think I did an AOLA pubs. So, I'd, you know, we, you would be assigned an eval. And so he was good at training us. Later on, that hat was passed on to other people. But that was in 1971 through the end of 72, the closest that I worked with him. Well, you just named as uh, you just named several uh, locations. What what did those Asho and Saint Hill have to do with what you were doing on the ship? I don't understand. Well, yes, that's a very good point. So, as I said, we worked at the pleasure of the Commodore. So, when this technology, so-called technology of evaluations, was developed, and he wrote the data series. Um, that became a course, and we all we all the aid all aids all had to do this course. And Mary Sue and I were the first ones to graduate, pat in the back there. And then instead of working on the division three of an organization, I would be given the whole folder of the whole organization. And my hat of assistance to the Commodore now became looking at that whole organization overall, finding out what the weak spots were um, from an evaluation of their statistics and figuring out how to fix it. So this no longer had to do with my own division. This was a different hat altogether. Okay, so you but, were you were examining the paperwork and data from these places in other countries while yep. you were on the ship. Okay. Yes, that all the this was the funnel. Everything came aboard with big boxes because you know there was no uh, emails then, and it was all like. Uh, telex or just uh, paper stuff coming in. Okay. okay. So I did that and I was trained by LRH. He was kind to me uh, when he, when I was doing that, except one incident that I remember where, uh, you know, we worked at night, right? Okay. Now you, this is not as generally known. There were two reasons for that. Uh, our schedule had to follow LRH's schedule. We had to be on deck before he came on deck which was around noon every day, and we could not secure back to our quarters until he had secured for the night. And then the messenger would come around and say, the Commodore's on deck, the Commodore has secured. And so one time I had been up for like 36 hours doing one of these dastardly evals, because, you know, I would say this is a little terrifying at that time in terms of, you know, pleasing the old man with our results. It was high stress stuff. And so because I'd been up for 36 hours because he was waiting for my eval, when I quit the eval and it was accepted, I, I secured maybe an hour earlier than he did. Well, I forgot about this, but uh, Janice Gillum Grady reminded me of this because she wrote it up in her book. She was sent down to find me because I had made the huge mistake of securing before LRH and mm. I was fined a week's pay. So you were fined a week's pay because yes. you went to bed before the yes. Commodore did. That was a, the extremely no, no thing to do. Yeah, I want you to know that. Right. <laughs> so I couldn't stand up on my feet. Well, um, the environment under LRH working under him was extremely high stress. 
for two reasons. Oh, by the way, I want to finish telling you first the second reason why we worked at night. The first one was because it was hot in the tropics. Sure. And we had no AC. The second one, later on, when I started reading a lot about LRH in his habits, in his life, in various biographies that have come out, it turns out that he's a total night owl, and he has been all his life. There's stories of him writing, you know, all night with a bottle of rum next to him and coming out with something finished the next morning, throwing it into the publishers. He has always worked and written at night. And I went, ugh. <laughs> so um, that forced us all of his personal um, household unit staff and his Commodore staff aides to follow suit and work at night for okay. those five years. Okay. That was not good. Uh, so uh, let's see, where was I going to lead with that? Um, after you were fined for oversleep or for sleeping before the oh, the I was saying this was very thank you. I was saying this is very high stress for a number of reasons. LRH uh, was very mercurial. Uh -huh. That means that you know he'd be fine one day, and then the next day you'd hear him bellowing out of his research room, and it would be something like what you know that would you be would be how it start. And he was unhappy about something that had happened on the ship. And how he found out was, you know, you would hear the patty pat of the messengers up and down, up and down. They were right. running fast-paced messages to try to elucidate what was going on. And you were just hoping that it wasn't something to do with your area of responsibility, <laughs> which for me was finance. Right. And so that was stressful. <clears throat> and then he had absolute power over everyone and everything on the vessel. And under such a type of arrangement, there is no stability and no certainty and no security right. to be had. That was one of the reasons to do with his personality. He was an absolute perfectionist. And then the other thing is the jobs that we had were chronically and permanently too big for the amount of time that we had to perform them. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I had all of the ship's finances. I had all of the uh, divisional uh, finances in what we called division three, which was a treasury division in all of the organizations. I had all audits worldwide, the solvency of all the orgs. I had to do a whole bunch of evaluations, as I just described, which were not really part of my intrinsic hat. And in the middle of it all, one day I got a message and says, the Commodore says you're responsible for estates now. <laughs> so estates was all of the physical buildings that were owned by the Sea Org. This is like a million dollars worth of assets. And that was quite a handful. And this is because he decided it wasn't going well somewhere else and he just dumped it on me. And let me well, just and let me just tell uh, help the readers when you hear Louise talk about her hat, just insert the word job. Scientologists all use the word their assigned job is their hat. Yes. So, uh, go ahead, Louise. I'm just trying to help translate to say, for the Yes, or he used to say a hat is not a job. It is something in a crusade. It was, you know, your passion. It was your way of conquering the world. You know, he was very serious about that. Uh, so because all those jobs were really too difficult for one person to handle, you were always in trouble, basically. Okay. Because you could never, it was a no-win situation. And over the years, I saw many others uh, of my colleagues who were unceremoniously dumped from their job and replaced overnight by somebody else because they had displeased the boss uh, for reasons which were not always made clear. So I managed to hold on all those years uh, there, but for the grace of God go I, as they say, any day I expected that I would be relieved of my duties, but I never was. So I guess uh, one of the things was that I did the financial planning 
for the ship. And very sadly, I had to keep the expenses way down, which really uh, was tragic in terms of the consequences on the crew. Um, but LRH had said to me and written in policy, you are not there to buy your popularity with org funds and you should stand in the mirror and practice saying no. You see the vibe here. (laughs) Just don't be nice about it. So that's that. Now I want to talk a little bit more about his personality because everybody's going to ask, what was he like? Yeah. 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 So if you want to go there, we, as people who were close to LRH are not really in a position as professionals to say he was a, this, he was a, that he was a narcissist, blah, blah, blah. Even, and especially professionals, as you know, will decline to, Uh, issue forth with a diagnosis on someone that they have not personally um, interviewed, right? Uh, But I can say some things that I observed, and not only that, but I can tell them to you now, because with hindsight, I have studied these things Uh and have been able to put the dots together. LRH, every night when he came out of his pompously called research room, which was his office, he would come out and he would be at the top of the top deck on the ship above the stairs, and the messengers would come around and say, the Commodore's securing. And we were required then to come out of our office and hang by the banister, and he would hold court. Mm-hmm. He would talk about what went on that day, sometimes technical. He would talk about what he'd written, some of the policy letters or technical bulletins to do with the technology of Scientology, how to do the auditing and the training that he had written. He would talk about everything from the World Federation of Mental Health to, you know, how nasty the politicos were or the medicos were or the uh, people in the uh, council in Britain that had to give us permits to build our buildings or any kind of authorities, he was completely iconoclastic about all of that pretty much all the time. And so he would end his little spiel, which was about five minutes long. Sometimes we would just, mostly we would just listen. Sometimes one of us would hazard a response, but mostly not. And then he would end with a joke and a big guffawing laugh, and he would go down the stairs. Every night, that was his shtick. Okay. And so there was this sense with LRH at all times that he loved having an audience, required having an audience, and uh, he cultivated this personality as a greater-than-life person. And this was not accidental or casual. This was well thought out, well rehearsed. It seems as though his entire personality was a, was a public personality. And you're talking about a man who recorded thousands of lectures in front of various adoring audiences. Right. And that carried over into his relationship with his uh, personal, private uh, aides. They were really kind of seven of us plus his personal secretary. And Mary Sue would be around once in a while. So there'd be eight or nine of us plus the attending messengers and so on. So he was he a narcissist? You bet. Um, But he had this jolly side to him in his public pronouncements. And I mentioned already in his tapes, he would do jokes and so on. And he also did it um, with us most of the time. Sometimes he seemed annoyed, but mostly not. But then once in a while, he would totally erupt in his research room and um, get searing mad and searing loud. And um, as I said, we didn't always know what had gone on, but usually by the end of the day when he came out, he would tell us 
you'd say, why these guys in the engine room, you know, they don't know this from that. And, nah, 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 nah. and so you would usually find out at the end of the day, but, but he would then calm down. That's why I say he had a very mercurial personality. He was right. one of those hot and cold personalities, but everything was always bigger than life. Now you got to realize I did not know anything about the man before I met him on day one. Okay. There was no biographies. There was no Scientology where I grew up. There was no internet. There was no web. There was no nothing. So what you see is what you get. And so we, so that I was in a position where I was operating in the dark that whole time mm. about who he was, what his backgrounds were, previous wives, previous marriages, anything like that. I will give you an example that's kind of startling that I only found out later. He gave me a conference one time, and this was a private conference, just me and him in his research room. So the messenger would come in and say, the commodore wants to see you. He'd go, oh, sh yeah. And uh, grab your clipboard and your pen and go sit in his office, his research room, right. in the big red chair there, and he would offer you a cool, which I would always decline, a cigarette, cool brand, okay. Yes, a mental cool. These were murder. And then he would start talking to you, and you'd have to look at him and converse with him all the while taking notes, because in the beginning, these were not recorded. Later on, they were recorded. And this was during uh, the 1971 era where um, some of the orgs, uh, including the Sea Org orgs, AOLA, ASHO, and so on, they would take checks from people to, for people, public Scientologists, to pay for their services, and they knew the checks were not good. But they would report the income, and the checks wouldn't bounce until the week after. <laughs> <laughs> so when, so the, so the, so that the, you know, the gross income on Thursday at two o'clock, which was the official end of the week, would look great. But then came to do the F, the financial planning for the next week to pay the staff and feed them, and there was no real money there. Uh -huh. That was tragic. That was actually quite tragic. But for a while, we at Flag were uh, not aware of this situation, and when we became aware of it, it was uh, very drastic. The actions that were taken to curb that. Well, Allerich gives me this. Uh, talk to point out to me quite succinctly that uh, it's illegal to pass a bad check. It's not just immoral or, you know, as we used to say in Scientology, out ethics. It's that there's actually laws against it. And so I go, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then we, all the aides got on it. We fixed the problem eventually. Many, many years later, I was reading about LRH Tony and it turned out that the only time he ever had any record of arrest was for <laughs> you know what? Passing a bad Passing check. A bad check in San Luis Obispo County. Yep. This is my way of reconciling and pointing out the cognitive dissonance that went on the whole time I was close to this man. Because we operated in a vacuum about the fact that much of his previously bragged about biography was, let's just say, flimsy at best, mm -hmm. right? To be generous. He just lied through his teeth. Yeah. And so we didn't know that. So all you had was the man in front of you. I can say that he was never particularly nasty to me. Uh, but I saw other people who really got put through the ringer. Okay. One of them was Otto. I think the worst I ever heard LRH scream was one day Otto Roos came up there. And this is all now known for the record. And Otto said something to LRH about his auditing case that LRH didn't like. I never heard the man scream so loud. And Otto came running out of there. LRH came running out after him. And the next day, Otto Roos was on the dock, never to wow. be seen again. Wow. 
And so, and there's, I saw him one time with uh, Starkey, who was the captain. So I saw him get really, really, really mad at other people. Uh, and I knew that he had that trait that was there. Uh, the difference between DM and LRH, I think, is that I don't think LRH, as an individual with the people that he dealt with in his immediate entourage, was nasty the way that DM later was. I mean, there's no question in my mind that DM was uh, the malignant kind of narcissist. LRH was more bent on aggrandizing himself, uh, sort of propping up his own personal history. And interestingly, I read about a kind of narcissism, which is sort of the spiritual kind, the spiritual guru kind, which is the one that says, I am the only one that has the truth. Is that familiar? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And another one, which is a cerebral narcissist. That's the guy who thinks that I'm way the hell smarter than anybody else out there. How's that sound? Maybe familiar? Yeah. Right. yeah. So we know those two were uh, developed in oversized levels with him. Perfectionism, constant need of attention and admiration, um, using manipulation. Yeah, we, we can check that box. And the other one was that he was very particular about his appearance and his image. So when he was at St. Healy, he became the lord of the manor. You know, he uh -huh. had the big cars. When he was on the ship, he had a motorcycle and a boat. He was always impeccably dressed. Uh, he was always impeccably polite, except when he was furious. Uh, and he just manicured that image all the time. That was important to him. For instance, his office was the research room. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Everything is, you know, to a T. So he had all of those um, traits. And the other trait that was frightful but did not really come out until later in terms of my awareness was how much he hated the authorities and hated with a vengeance, with a cruel passionate vengeance everybody who disagreed with him and that included all authorities medical authorities psychological and psychiatric authorities police authorities law enforcements judges lawyers journalists uh you you see what i'm saying here anybody in the position of authority who had any kind of even uh, even an inkling of a possibility of being against him yeah. was despised, and that's despised is mild. It was hate, hatred. And he would, he, would, he would rant. He would rant about that type of person quite often in his evening uh, rants or late-night rants for no good reason, we thought, except that we didn't know what Mary Sue was telling him. Oh, that's interesting. Well, he was keeping him abreast of all that was going on in the bigger world. Well, one thing that I found so fascinating about the uh, ouds, as they're called by you veterans, uh, the um, orders, orders of the day, um, was, you know, every, he every once in a while he would include his thoughts about the larger world. Yeah. And they were really paranoid. I mean, he would, he would mm. be talking about these, you know, basically um, bizarre international things going on. And repeatedly... He would refer to Smirsh. Yeah. Did he ever? Do you remember him talking about that or bringing that up around you at all yes, as kind did. of a boogeyman? He, yeah, Smirsh was uh, his word for. Uh, I think it was taken from a James Bond thing as a as a. It would li it was lifted off from that as a nickname, but for him it was the World Federation of Mental Health and so on, and also some of the big ass bankers that were in England. Remember, he was kicked out of Rhodesia, he was kicked out of England, he was in trouble with uh, tax authorities in the U.S. Right. The man had many reasons for not liking that type of people, right. right? Personal reasons, I would say, but of course, part of the personality type is never being wrong. Yeah. Never, ever, yeah. ever being able to say, oops. Wow. Right. So 
say he would research something, and this was startling in the technology side of things, because he would research a process and he would start it, and then folders would come in of the reports of the sessions that were done using these processes and something didn't go well or didn't work, whatsoever. He wouldn't, he didn't say, oh, this didn't work well, we'll do something else. He would say, I have made a new discovery <laughs> <laughs> on top of the old one, right? right. It would never, oh, this didn't quite work. So the biggest thing in Scientology, as you know, is keeping Scientology working, right. which is a complete police state write up about how uh, one is not allowed to have any kind of free thought regarding anything that he's ever uttered. That is the ultimate narcissist uh, dictum, in my opinion. And that's actually why I left Scientology. Uh, was, uh, I would, if you won't believe this, but I was declared for failing to keep Scientology working. <laughs> so, so you've painted a picture of a, um, a narcissist who could be polite and charming, but also had a volcanic temper mm. and who always needed to be right. Mm. I've also been, I've also been told that when those stresses got extreme, he knew when to pull back a little bit, show a little kindness to kind of, you know, keep people from going over the edge. Did you see that? Yes, I did. And this was known as, uh, this was known about. So, you know, he had this very cruel thing that he would say, when things are going bad, you have to put a head on the pike. That's pretty right. drastic. Yeah. And when we did evaluations, we were required to find a who, not just a why the org was failing, but who a single person or sometimes a small group of person, we were required to name the person who was the most at fault. And then a mission would be sent and they would be bounced. Usually right. that's how that right. went. Right. I hated that part because I didn't really believe that's how life really was. These things are not always so cut and dried. Mm. Well, he one time would say, um, and actually I think it's in policy, you take the action and you put the head on the pike and you handle the situation and you get the statistics back up. And then you go back around and you fix or take care of the person who was involved. Mm. Okay. So that was interesting because he had this seesaw going between the organizational requirement to keep the org solvent. And let me tell you, Tony, these orgs struggled financially, okay. all of them. And I was kind of paranoid. I was paranoid about that because I was responsible for that. But then he also saw the technicality of what would go on with them. I have two things to say about him that I think need to be said to understand the man. Okay. First one is that um, he, it is difficult to statuate on the question of empathy as far as L. Ron Hubbard goes. He audited, he wrote processes to try to audit some of the staff. And I believe he generally wanted, genuinely wanted to help and genuinely thought that the things he was doing and creating and uh, writing up were helpful to these individuals. I beg to differ at this time, big, bigly, <laughs> that's what he would say, but another guy, but um, I believe that he thought that he was doing good. Okay. And that he cared about the staff members under him. And I have spoken with Karen about this. And uh, I think that uh, she would not disagree profoundly with me in that statement. Okay. There was a second thing which was going on with him, which is he was a cheerleader. That was part of his personality. Okay. And if you want to read those orders of the day, he would throw in a joke or two and he would try to gently encourage the crew to do better. It wasn't right. all black right. when he spoke to the whole crew because he had to massage that Commodore personality that he had as the great leader. He couldn't be an asshole to everybody all the time. I mean, the, the troops would have flocked away. Right. So he was generally, you know, he would say, okay, well, so this, this is going terribly today, but the next day he would say, yeah, well, they fixed it. You know, so he tried to be engaging, amusing, warm, uh, in that public persona in the orders of the day. And, um, 
of course, always in his tapes and in public. But he had this really mean streak when things didn't go his way or people yeah. disagreed with him, which right. was verboten, absolutely verboten. You never talked back to the old man. That was just not something that you could do. And so it's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And so I, for the longest time, I've had trouble disentangling my feelings about him. It's, yeah, but I used to like the old man. Right. You know what I mean? I didn't hate him every day that I was working there. There were other factors I won't talk about. I loved being on the ship. I loved the travel. uh, And to me, that was exciting. I loved running the boat. I was steering the boat. As a 20-year-old female, I never would have had that experience in the real world. I loved the fact that he was ungendered at that time. A lot of his aides were female because, you know, we were all big beings from from millions of years back. So who cared what gender we had this lifetime? So that was very refreshing in 1970, I should say. Yeah. But um, even then I had a certain amount of cognitive dissonance about a number of things, but we won't go into the details. But okay, but, you've, but you've, you've, you've given us a pretty interesting portrait of, Ms. of uh, Hubbard. Now let's, 1975, um, you then left then and you spent some years as a public, I guess, but then you in eighty in seven in eighty six is when you were invited to go to gold. And right. Start with and so you had some now you had become a filmmaker at that time? Yeah, well, you know, I grew up in that business as well. And so yeah, I became a filmmaker and I did a little documentary that was uh, well-regarded. It picked up awards, even though I did it in Toronto, it picked up in awards in New York and San Francisco and various other places. So I had a bit of a name as a, as a director. And then, uh, and I was working on film mostly. And then uh, my husband and I did an event in uh, Toronto and the execs came in and we came to the notice of Monica Prince, who at the time was a Commodore's messenger at Gold and at the time was the wife of the well-known Jesse Prince. Okay. Monica being a very lovely person. Um, she noticed me and she came to know me and she went back to Gold and reported about my existence. Okay. And I was invited to go up to Gold and do a test shoot on one of the films. And so that went well. I shot uh, a very complicated scene up in the mountains involving animals and whatnot. And with the crew of Gold, uh, the Gold Cinema, it was called Cine. It was a cinema division responsible for making the films. Right. And so I was in, I was very vigorously recruited then to go up there and go back into the Sea Org and become the director. There's not a lot. There's a lot of, of stuff to be known. There was just a lot of stars aligned at that time. First of all, LRH had just died. Yeah. In early 1976. 86. And Tony, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1986. I'm sorry. And one of the things I didn't know, Tony, but I got from reading Marthy Radburn's uh, book, first book, was that the whole thrust of this program that went on for years to clear LRH's Legal right. name was that right. he wanted to go back and make the films. Ah. That was his goal. That he wanted to go back to Hemet, to that place they built, that little house they had for him, big house. Yeah. And he wanted to finish making the films. Now, to specify, LRH wrote the full script, word by word, for 16 technical films. These films were to be shown to people who were doing their training, which was called the academy training. To become auditors. To become auditors. It was how to operate the meters, you know, how to conduct yourself as an auditor, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Very technical. And he wrote every word of it. And then he also wrote what were called public films. And for these, he did not write the full script, but he wrote a page or two treatment for every topic. Right. One that was actually written out in full and made was How to Save Your Marriage or some such. I forget yeah. now what it was called. Right. That was, was actually made and shown. But um, he had Which written... Which starred... Uh, isn't Jason Begay in that? I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Go I ahead. don't remember. I just can tell you that my ex wrote the script for that. He was very... Okay. okay, so that when I was brought in as director, he was brought in as script writer. So it was like they were getting a one-two punch of you know high-priced talent over there. 
And we were old Sea Org members with quite a good record and good security records. So we're like, what's not to like? Well, to the point, Tony, where they sent what was called an extraction mission <laughs> to my house in Toronto to help me finish everything and arrive at gold as the director. Okay. Now, at that time, LRH had just passed away. DM had been solidifying his grip on the entire shebang, the whole Scientology world, right. these past few years between 1982 and 1986. Yeah. By the time I arrived at Gold in 1986, he was known as COB. He was already known as COB in 86? Yes, sir. Wow. Yes, sir. And COB... Which, is, which stands of, for Chairman of the Board. Go ahead. Of which board was never entirely clear to me because it was ASI, but then it was RTC and the whole shebang. Let's just say that the corporate structure was a little nebulous in my mind. Sure. What I did know is that every single shot that I would shoot with Cine every day had to go directly to him for personal approval. Okay. So we had uh, definitely had a relationship. <laughs> so, in other words, that's a great yeah. that's a great piece of evidence because I've wondered about how long it took for him to kind of consolidate his power after Hubbard died on January twenty fourth, nineteen eighty six. Oh, it was already what there. What's, what I'm what you're saying is that by the time you got there that year he was already fully in control of everything. Indeed. Okay. No question about that. And, uh, you know, RTC was in, was in effect at that point. Now, I have to backtrack a little bit about DM to say that um, DM was trained by LRH as a cameraman when right. they started doing the very first film uh, at this place called La Quinta, where LRH was before he hightailed it out of there for security reasons. You probably... The details are not important. But so DM took a leaf off the old man. This would have been in seven, before he took off. So 78, 79, maybe early 80. I don't have an exact date. There is this famous photo where LRH is uh, in the same shot as DM. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> LRH's mood at that time, by all accounts, had soured profoundly relative to his mood on the ship. Okay. And this is because on the ship, he was relative, relatively safe in international waters. Yeah. Which we made sure to stay in most of the time. I mean, we had a policy that we could pick up at any given time and just tootle off three miles or 12 miles at sea, however you want to look at it. And we were impervious to any kind of... Um, government interference. That's right. just the law of the sea. Right. Well, the shit hit the fan in many different ways. You know, as you know, the story is well known now. When he got ashore and he was n near us in Daytona, he was not able to sustain that for more than a few weeks or a couple months. And then he took off and then he took off again. And then he went somewhere else and then he tried something else. And so by then, by the late 70s, by all account, he was not in a good mood, and I can't blame him for that because he was being hounded with reason, I should add, but that would make anybody go a little nuts. Okay. Imagine you know, being on the run like that all the time while trying to run a big international organization. Well, he was not a happy camper, and I'm sorry to say that this is the period of his life where DM interacted with him, and I think that molded DM's approach to handling staff and okay, handling so so thing. you're so what you're saying is that Miscavige spent time with Hubbard at his worst yes. and so then absorbed that as the way he should act. I believe that's the case. Okay. There are a couple people ar uh, around who could verify that guess, uh, Janice being one of them and she's you know she still has to write about that period. But she's written a couple things about it and from conversations. So what was about, he like? What was Miscavige like when you got there? Uh, irascible. Authoritarian. Uh, iconoclastic. Sorry for the big words. Um, intransigeant, we see in French. Intractable, intransigent? Intr is that a word in English? Intransigent, yeah. No, that's like 
you you cannot discuss uh, inflexible you say yes, i suppose yes, yes. and uh he was trying of course he did not have the stature that lrh had so he had a he had to make a special point to squash people enough so that they would respect him to the degree that he wished to be respected well lrh didn't have that problem Right. You know, he was like the source. DM was just some guy who shows up and now he's the big boss and he wished to have the same infall infallibility as LRH did, but that was like a tall order for him. Well, you talked about stature, you just used the word tall. I mean, how much of this is related to the fact that <laughs> the man is only five foot one? I got that from his tailor, okay? The the Claudio Lulli, who made clothes for for Miscavige for twenty years. Okay, let me tell you a story. <laughs> assures me that he's only five foot one. So I agree. I mean, this what was this like for you to be have this you know ruthless uh, five foot one what five foot one guy yelling at you? I mean, would he okay. yell at you? Uh, yeah, but mostly at others in front of me. Okay. I had to be protected because there was only one director. Okay. So I he had to you know he, he couldn't blow me off. He couldn't afford to. Let me tell you a story. One time I had to uh, to to uh, shoot. There was this thing called a Tony Hitchman film, I think it was, and I had to shoot a new introduction by uh, Miscavige to the Tony Hitchman film because the film was to be reissued at one of the events, and so I, uh, you know, set up a stage and uh, you know a set, and I had a chair for him to sit in. And Shelly came down. She said, no, no chair. He will stand up. He is short. He would look lost in that chair. <laughs> I kid you not. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh, but it's just. Uh, <laughs> you can't. And, and, you know, the other the other thing about it is Shelly looking out for him. I mean, that that was her job, right? Totally. Yes, totally. So, uh, so we shot that. Now, every time I shot something with DM in it, I was like holding my life in my hands. It was just so damn scary. Yeah. Now, there's another one like this that I will tell you about DM, which was kind of interesting. One time I was, um, I might have been in the RPF where I was just, I think I might have, and then I had to do something in the, uh, there was a big room in one of the uh, cottages where uh, where he was working. This is where be, they before they built this big fancy building for him. It was up on the hill, and there was this whole big room that was his uh, wardrobe. It was just full of his clothes. And I walked out of there one day, and I saw him going down on the motorcycle along with uh, Tom Cruise. Okay. And Shelley was up there with me, and. For some reason, out of the blue, she made this comment to me. She said, well, he doesn't have a lot of friends, you know. Wow. That was interesting. It was a way of saying that he valued his relationship with Cruz because, you know, he had a friend. And so to, to your point about how she, you know, she had his back. Yeah. Okay. Now, the process of getting the shots approved... Uh, was that the shot would go through Gary Weesey, who had been the producer, had been bounced off and was now the editor. And Tony, in all of my career, this is the only time where the editor had the right to decline to use a shot done by the director. This was really weird. Yeah. And uh, there was only one book we had to use. And Tony, uh, and so Weesey would just say, no, that won't cut. Uh, you know, the, the, and it would be either, you know, for gesture or lighting or any other reason. And if he didn't like it, he would bounce it. And then if he liked it, he would send it to DM and then DM would approve it. Now we lived and died by these approval approvals. And I am not kidding you because our stat was shots in the can. Mm. And I will go back and say that the Cine division had a va very bad reputation because back in winter when LRH was shooting, he was so displeased with that crew that the word was that he developed what was known as the false purpose rundown ah. to handle the evilness of that cynic. Okay, crew. let me just unpack that a little bit. You were talking about Miscavige at the Gold Base, Int yep. Base, in the late 80s. And then you flashed back to uh, Hubbard making films at Winter, which was the code name 
for his uh, compound near uh, Palm Quinta. Springs, right? La Quinta. Yeah. Um, and that was in 77, 78, right? That's when he was making films in the desert. Mm-hmm. And when uh, Miscavige was this young cameraman, only 17 or 18 years old, uh, assisting him. Um, and he was camera operator. This is why he thought he knew it all when I came around. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Hubbard then was so unhappy with his crew and, you know, we've seen photographs from that era and they're, they're just so amateurish and terrible. And Indeed. of course, Scientology talks about what an epic master photographer Hubbard was, but if you look at the pictures, they're terrible. And I would love to see how bad those films were, but that's one of the things that's on the sort of Holy Grail list is we still have not been leaked the training films from the seventies. I'm sure they're just epically bad. But anyway, about them, he, he, so Hubbard, um, Hubbard was unhappy with the crew. So he developed the false purpose rundown, which is essentially an interrogation to try to root out people that are having bad yeah, thoughts. Because, you know, evidently he must have thought that the reason they were crossing him was because it wasn't because Lord forbid they were untrained. They didn't know the first word about making movies. Yeah. I mean, there is something to know about that, but it was just as far as he was concerned, they had evil purposes to cross him or right. Scientology. It's like, how wrapped around the pole can you be? Well, when I came around in, in 86, the cine crew still had, that reputation okay bless their heart and they were in my opinion such willing and good people i have been in touch with some of them now again i would say four or five and i was very fond of the whole crew now i was not there in the 90s when he really went to town with you know physical stuff and the whole and blah 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 i left in 1990 because i saw where this was going so, Louise, you've given us a real good idea of what it was like working for L. Ron Hubbard and then what it was like working for David Miscavige. So now, you know, I would just like you to talk about, think, you know, the differences you saw in the two and maybe a little comparison. What are your thoughts on that? Night and day. <laughs> so Hubbard uh, positioned himself as a very public person throughout his whole life. And he positioned himself when he started Scientology and Dianetics and later to Sea Org, truly as the savior of mankind, right? So with that kind of uh, position to begin with, he had to be nice. He had to be uh, pleasant. Uh, He had to be a gentleman. And, you know, I always go back to his St. Hill, you know, the Lord of the Manor kind of um, position that he put himself in, the, you know, mystique that he created against uh, around himself. And also, he had to seem like he had a great deal of psychological depth and empathy and understanding of human beings. And so that was a pretty unshakable public persona, which is usually what came through. In private, uh, there were two major flaws that, that came through, I should say, that are obvious. The first one was that his own temperament uh, got in his way because he was very prone to flash flashes of anger. And the second thing that came through is that his particular psychological makeup made it so that he would get uh, violently uh, hateful against anybody who stood up in his way or criticized him or criticized his movement or his actions. So that's basically the sum of what you saw. DM is a different story. He didn't start out with a huge social capital of adoring fans did he he started from like nowheres yeah and so he had to build his personality and his power from scratch and he had to basically uh, fight his way through it every step of the way i'm not sure that his physical shortness had anything to do with it other than perhaps we don't seem to know exactly what causes narcissists to become narcissists 
nor near as I can tell do we know exactly what causes psychopaths to become psychopaths. So I'm not going to go down that road, but it's clear that he, by sheer force of will and cunning, got himself to the position where he took over the movement. Uh, there was opposition. We know the broker story. We know people who were technically more advanced than, uh, than he was and so on. But he prevailed and to continue to prevail, he had to continue to fight. So his take on this is that he lives in a world of zero-sum games. He has to win at all costs. Yeah. And he has to keep winning at all costs. And so in addition to having all the baggage against, um, you know, anti-Scientologists and Scientology critics and people who oppose Scientology that LRH uh, kind of passed on to him, he has his personal um, vendettas. And when I was working with him in 86 to 90, he was never violent towards me. And I do not know of instances in that time frame where he was physically violent with people. He was certainly verbally abusive. Uh, I've witnessed incidents of that. Um, but he couldn't do without me because there was only one director and the whole of gold was about making films. And in the end, he replaced me with someone who was not Sea Org and who stayed there for a decade. But uh, his name was Mitch Britsker. But the thing is, he also needed Brisker, but Brisker had stature because he was non-Sea Org and because he also was indispensable. He was way more successful than I ever was. But the point is that um, both by his situation within the movement, which was acquired and not you know, created from scratch, and by his personality, um, he developed into you know, what he became. And uh, I saw that there was a worsening over the years that I witnessed um, you know, his activities. And I believe that it continued. One of the things that sticks in my mind, like real strongly, is that when he said, when he said the war is over during this uh, tape of uh, the 1990, uh, yeah. yeah, well, that wasn't that long after I left. And right. the story has been told to me that he absolutely hit the roof because the cameras did not stay on him while he was mouthing the words, the war is over. Right. And head, heads rolled. Yeah, I heard that. that. One. Right. Okay. Well, that's just an example to me that crystallizes that where he's coming from. Um, not only does the win have has to be have to be had for the organization, but it the, the camera always has to be on him. And over the years, he kept disposing of more and more people by calling them incompetence and worse. And so that, you know, for instance, uh, when I first came to Gold Tony, I was doing the sound on TR1, which was a film that LRH has, had shot, and the sound was bad. They wanted to re-release the film at a big event. So I had to redub the entire film, and I spent several weeks in the studio doing that. And then one day the execs came in, and it was DM, and then it was Inspector General for... Uh, tech, which was Mitoff. There was Inspector General for Admin, which I think was Jaeger. Mark Rinder was in there, and Marty Radbung was in there. So that was the whole uh, trio of these Inspector Generals that was working uh, for him. And so, yeah, I think there was four of them plus him. Over time, he got rid of every one of those guys. Yeah. And it was always about how they were a bunch of idiots, and nobody knew how to do things nobody was competent nobody was really helping and everybody was getting was against him well in what, that in, in that way it seems like they were very similar they're both paranoid yes but i think that hubbard uh, did have some um team building ability uh -huh. i mean he built them the thing from scratch right 
that um, that uh, by personality, by public personality, that was required of him. Uh, but uh, but uh, Miscavige doesn't have that particular situation, and so um, and so they're in totally different circumstances. And also by personality, I think that Miscavige is just a profoundly uh, you know damaged individual. <laughs> what can I tell you? So um, in a way that um, you know he's taken it to new heights. <laughs> Let's just say. Well, they have very different ways of speaking, for example. I mean, Hubbard had this sort of uh, slightly odd stage uh, way of speaking that was kind of elaborate, whereas uh, Miscavige sounds like a, a thug from South Philly, you know. Yeah, they... he, yeah he sounds stilted, whereas one of Hubbard's great strengths was his ability to just mouth off for an hour and keep everybody spellbound. Uh-huh. That's because he was sort of lighthearted and had a sense of humor, and uh, that was his particular charisma. Right. Uh, he was a writer and he was a speaker of some note, and uh, Miscavige doesn't have any of that, and so um, and so he makes up for it by being very tightly scripted, and uh, it just doesn't come off. So that's you know there there's there are two different personalities, but there's no. There's no comparison to me uh, that that uh, I had some fondness for LRH and I didn't have ever a shred of uh, fondness for Miscavige. I just found him a very unpleasant individual from the get go, and it got worse as it went. That's right. sort of yeah, that's how that was. All right. Uh, well, thank you so much for that uh, look at that. I think it's just <laughs> been fascinating and. You know, you've you've uh, you've been in some amazing places in Scientology history, <laughs> and I'm so glad we we got to uh, get you on here on the podcast because I mean your articles have been great, but wow, I mean uh, I think today has been just something else. And thank you so much, Louise, for being on the podcast. Thank you for asking, and I want to say that I plan to start writing again about that gold period because it's actually quite interesting. Uh, as wait. well that's I what's coming wait. next down the All pike right. thank you Back so much Louise. all right, all right bye -bye. take care bye-bye <laughs>